so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Dr. Seuss famously wrote, A person's a person, no matter how small. As Christians, we go a step further and say, A person's a person, no matter his or her age, stage, ability, or perceived value in society. Dan Darling spoke about this at Evangelicals for Life and encouraged us to see how God's Word upholds the dignity of every individual. Let's tune in now. Well, during World War II, Theodore Giesel was a cartoonist who applied his creative gifts to rally America to the Allied cause. His pro-America cartoons were a fixture in newspapers and magazines across the country. He was steadfastly in support of America in Great Britain and other Allied countries as they fought the Axis powers. But Giesel's work went beyond patriotism. In his cartoons, he presented Japanese people as less than human. His illustrations helped stoke an ugly anti-Japanese sentiment in the time in the U.S. when Japanese Americans were rounded up in order to evacuate their homes and businesses and sent off to internment camps. But something happened to Giesel in 1953 after the war. He took a tour of Japan, and he met with survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And something changed inside of Giesel. He saw humanity and people he once considered subhuman. So when he returned to America, full of deep remorse, he apologized in the only way that he understood. He wrote a children's book under the pen name of Dr. Seuss a book we now know as Horton Hears a Who. He dedicated this book to the Japanese. And in this book is an unforgettable line, one that borrows from a uniquely Christian concept that a person's a person, no matter how small. Dr. Seuss raised a powerful question that has puzzled civilization since the beginning. What exactly does it mean to be human? And what does it mean to see the humanity of others? Regardless of your religious or moral framework, there's an instinctive sense within each of us that whispers the truth that being human matters. Have you ever wondered, for instance, why our hearts are splintered by human suffering in ways that don't match the grief of any other kind of loss? Have you considered why our hearts are moved by human goodness in ways that don't match our joy from any other experience. We react this way, I believe, because deep inside every one of us is a sense that humanity matters. I would argue that this concept of human dignity originates in the Christian story. Of course, there are traces of 
human dignity in other religions such as Islam and Judaism, and some of our great philosophers. But those traces are only filled out in full by the Christian gospel. Of course, this doesn't mean that only Christians have recognized human dignity, nor does it mean that Christians have always understood or practiced well the concept of human dignity and the cultures in which they were situated. But it does mean, and I do believe, that the basis for human dignity is borrowed from the Bible. This robust vision of humanity is one of the best gifts that Christianity gives to the world. Just consider the way, for instance, that the book of Genesis opens with a profound definition of what it means to be human. Here you have Moses narrating the creation of the world, and he has God speaking into existence the creation, and then he sort of slows down his narration when he describes the creation of humans, and he has God reaching with his hands and sculpting humans from the dust of the ground and breathing into humans the breath of life. King David says that every human being was knit together by God in the mother's womb. And Moses tells us that every human being was stamped with the image of God. And he tells us that the creation of humans was a divine event in the counsels of the triune God. Let us make man in our image implies a discussion among the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. Nowhere else in God's creative acts is this kind of deliberation suggested. So Genesis is telling us that of all the creative acts of God, the creation of humans is his best work. So this idea of human dignity is not an abstract concept. It's not an academic exercise. It's part of the language of the, of the Christian faith, which is why it's so important for Christians to fully understand this. If every human being is indeed created in the image of God, it has profound implications for how we see ourselves and how we see the world. In a world where we are increasingly made aware of terrible tragedy through racism and war and violence and abortion and disease and all sorts of things, Christians are often confused about how to react or what filters we need to, to understand a Christian response. And I want to suggest to you that human dignity is the ethic we need to engage a complex world, to obey both the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. And the world desperately needs the church to recover the Christian vision for human dignity. So what exactly does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, there's much here that we don't understand. But we do know that it means that we are not God and that we are not animals or angels either. It involves both humility and dignity. Dignity reminds us that we are like God in some way. We are more than simply the sum of our parts. We are not merely highly evolved mammals. We are not a collection of atoms. Humility reminds us that we are not God. We are not the center of our own universes. We are not the masters of our own fates. We are not the arbiter of right and wrong. We can't find sufficient reason for our existence or fulfillment from within. To be created in the image of God means that God has bestowed on you and me certain God-like characteristics, such as the ability to reason and think, to create, to love, to mourn. These are abilities that make us distinct from all the rest of creation. And yet we must be careful not to reduce the image of God to mere function. If we limit human dignity simply to those unique traits 
those unique human traits, it has a disastrous impact on the way we see those whose abilities are diminished due to disability. In fact, this idea that worth is based only on certain virtues or gifts or contributions to society allows for deciding that certain groups have less value. It's dangerous to reduce the ground of human dignity to what we do or what we offer rather than who we are. The image of God also gives us certain God-given responsibilities. We not only reflect the image of the one who created us, but we're called to be his representatives in his creation. Our imaging represents him both body and soul. We were given a mandate from creation to rule and to create, to love and to lead. And so in this way, we should understand Genesis to be reminding us that we are not gods, but mere imagers or image bearers of the triune God. And our temptation is either to turn toward God or away from God. We can turn inward and seek to be like God, or we can turn Godward in worship. And we should notice that Scripture is careful to remind us that, that humans are created after or in the image of God. Only one human being is ever described in Scripture as being the perfect image of God. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 and Colossians 1 reminds his readers that it is Christ who is the image of God. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, is the image of God. This is what makes the Christian vision of human dignity so unique. Jesus Christ is both the fullest embodiment of the image of God, the only human who fully embodies what it means to fulfill our mandate as image bearers, and he is the eternal creator God in whose image we were created and whose image Christians are being transformed. This means that the gospel not only gives us definitions for what it means to be human, but it gives us in Christ the possibility for the personal transformation that helps us see others in their full humanity. Well, today the challenges to human dignity are as serious as a faced any generation. Injustices prey on humans everywhere. Since that fateful decision in the Garden of Eden, the human race has been repeating this cycle of violence and death. A rejection of the image giver always results in injustice against image bearers. Humans corrupted by sin turn in on one another. We rather usurp God than represent him in the world. This tendency toward dehumanizing is what, for instance, enabled Americans to participate in the trafficking, selling, and ownership of black slaves during much of her history, and even enshrine the concept of subhumanity into law. It's what enabled the nationalist leader in a Christian nation to systemically marginalize and then attempt to exterminate the Jewish people in the 1940s in Germany. It's what enables injustice to happen today, from abortion to human trafficking, to violence, to family separation, and everything in between. We're able to close our eyes to injustice and passively give permission to evil because we employ these easy euphemisms that deny humanity to the vulnerable. Today, we refer to unborn babies as mere fetuses or clumps of cells. 
We call immigrants invaders. We see the elderly as a burden. We see the poor as takers deserving of their plight. This is why when Martin Luther King Jr. marched for civil rights, he often used the language of human dignity, declaring at many points, I am a man. In other words, can you see me as a full human? He recognized that the question of humanity lay at the heart of the issue of civil rights and of racism itself. Today, of course, we're fond of asking ourselves if we would be on the right side of all those issues of injustice in history. Where would we be in those moments? Would we risk everything, for instance, to hide Jewish people in Europe? Would we work with Wilberforce to end the slave trade in Great Britain if we were there? Would we march with Martin Luther King Jr. against white supremacy? But the answer to that question is not in self-righteous historical navel-gazing, but in looking around today and asking ourselves where human dignity is being assaulted. Are we willing to stand up, even at personal and political cost, for those who are being marginalized and dehumanized? Something happens when we refuse to see the human faces of the vulnerable. This is how we easily label populations as those people. This is how we accept or even push our leaders to champion policies that are cruel to the powerless. Without Scripture's definition for what it means to be human, we will succumb to the temptations of every generation to ignore or even justify injustice. Or we'll prioritize the dignity of one group of people at the expense of the other. I believe, just as the definition for humanity finds its place in the Christian story, so does the solution for humanity's ills. Jesus is the solution for the corruption that works its way into human hearts and causes people to turn against each other. Only Jesus can offer both personal forgiveness in the way we dehumanize our neighbors, and it is only Jesus who is returning as king to renew and restore a broken world. And we, as his redeemed image bearers, have been called to join him in this mission. Sadly, followers of Jesus can be blind or unwilling to see what God would have us to see. Or we think we have to choose between a gospel of personal salvation by faith in Christ and a gospel of social action. But Jesus does not allow us to do that. After all, it is Jesus who says to the most religious man of his time, Nicodemus, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And to his followers, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. And yet it is also Jesus who opens Isaiah's scroll and says that he is the embodiment of the kingdom promises, a kingdom of healing and hope, of good news for the poor. Sadly, we are often like the religious leaders on the road to Jericho. We find a lot of religious-sounding re reasons to pass by. I actually had my own experience with this a year ago, right after Evangelicals for Life. I brought my, my teenage daughter last year, Grace, as part of a, a gift to her for turning 13, and so after the conference was over, we went to go see the monuments and hang out in D.C. And I was very, you know, conscious of the time. I have a 13-year-old that's easily distracted. And I'm trying to keep her on, on, on time here. And so we were making our way to the monuments, and I'm rushing past. And we walked past 
a homeless veteran asking for money. And we got about a few paces past, and Grace looks at me and says, Dad, what? we need to help this guy. And I gave a typical excuse that most of us give, you know, well, I don't have any cash on me, or we'll get him next time. We got to keep going. She said, Dad, we cannot pass him by. So she took money out of her own wallet that we'd given her for allowance for the trip. And she walked back there and gave him money. She said, Dad, he's made in the image of God. He has worth and dignity. And I was like, man, you're learning this lesson too good. Sometimes in our debates, we think we're asking, what is the gospel? But instead, we're asking, who is my neighbor? We're not looking for clarity, but we're looking for loopholes to love. But we are children of a king who has given us both the great commission and the great commandment. We are to spread the news that image bearers can be reconciled to their creator who created them, and we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. You see, a church that moves toward the vulnerable, using its power and influence on behalf of those who have seen their dignity assaulted, becomes a powerful witness to the nature and reality of the kingdom of God. We become the people who point to the most vulnerable, the people whom society discards, and we say, we see you. You are human. You have value. And most importantly, God sees you. To the unborn targeted for death in America, we see you and God sees you. To the immigrant family waiting a knock on the door, we see you and God sees you. To the elderly, lonely and forgotten in nursing homes across America, we see you and God sees you. To the homeless, to the impoverished, to the working poor, we see you. And God sees you. To the trafficked young girl, we see you. To the victims of sexual assault, we see you. And God sees you. We will be a church who will welcome the marginalized and most vulnerable. We will be a church who will value people when they come into our doors, not by what they can offer us, not by their gift set or their talents or who they know or their connections, but we will say we value you because you're a human made in the image of God. And that person in your church who has severe dementia, who can't remember his wife's name, who can't offer anything to your church body in terms of leadership, is as valuable to the kingdom of God and as valuable to your body as the youngest, most active member of your church. And we do this not because it's the cause of the day, not because we fell in love with a hashtag, not because by doing so we'll find favor in our tribes, we see humanity in the other because we are the people of God. And we live and we serve, not from a position of moral superiority, but from a heart of brokenness, from a sense of our own vulnerability before God. But this will require courage. To live out the mission of God means we are to live as strangers and foreigners in this world which means we'll never be fully at home in any earthly movement. We have to join movements and we have to join institutions and we have to make voting decisions. But as citizens of the kingdom of God, there should always be a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of dissonance. There should always be spaces where the kingdom of God butts up against our tribe. Because we serve another king 
in another kingdom. We will not let ourselves be catechized by our tribes. We will go where Jesus calls us to go. We will not be embarrassed, for instance, to be pro-life because our parents were pro-life. And we're not afraid to be for justice because our kids are for justice. It means we'll embrace both a bloody cross and the Jericho Road. It means our faith will shape our politics instead of letting our politics shape our faith. And we will at times have to turn and say no to our tribes because we are saying yes to the line of the tribe of Judah. You see, we need a fully orbed pro-life vision that fights for human dignity wherever it's compromised, whether it's in the womb, whether it's on our city streets, whether it's in the nursing home, in the halls of power, or in a refugee camp somewhere. And we should speak out with whatever power and influence we possess for those whose voices have been silenced. And I want to suggest to you today that human dignity is the cause of our generation. And you and me are the people God is calling. And may it be so that when the last chapter of this generation is written, when history is told of all that we did during our time here on earth, may it be said that of all the people, it was those Christians, those crazy people who believed a man from Nazareth is the son of God who believed that he died and rose again and sitting at the right hand of the Father and is coming back again on a white horse. Those crazy people who had those crazy beliefs, that it was those people who uniquely stood up for the human dignity of those who could not speak for themselves. Because a person's a person, no matter how small. Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. If you found this episode helpful, be sure to share it with a friend and join us next week as we hear about the church and criminal justice reform.